0: This is Democracy on the Move. (music) Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, July 3, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we talk with Minnesota gubernatorial candidate Hugh McTavish. He was running under the Independent Alliance Party banner and will talk about his campaign, the issues he finds most important, and what he hopes to accomplish should he win the election in November. But first, have you ever thought that your vote doesn't count? With all the money being dumped on some candidates, it's difficult for the candidates without a lot of money to get noticed. And if they don't get noticed, you feel like you're throwing your vote away by supporting them. In 2010, the Supreme Court ruled on Citizens United, essentially saying that corporations are people and therefore can dump as much money into campaigns as they want. Is there a way we can reverse this decision? Is there a way we can fight for our democracy? Well, yes. Yes, there is. Greg Coleridge, the national co-director of Move to Amend, invites you to join the organization and help pass a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. You can join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So today we're talking with Minnesota gubernatorial candidate Hugh McTavish. Hugh is running as a member of the Independent Alliance Party. The Independent Alliance Party was created when the Independence Party of Minnesota joined with the Alliance Party. And the Independence Party of Minnesota is the same party that Jesse Ventura joined shortly into his term as governor back in 1999. The Alliance Party is a relative newcomer, but has made significant inroads in many states and even ran a candidate for president in the last election. The tagline on Hugh McTavish's web uh, on his campaign website reads, quote, jury democracy, bringing the power back to the people. Well, what is a jury democracy? And well, we'll get into that during our discussion. But here's a brief preview. It's a system of government where decisions are made by every citizen, not by a small number of representatives. Hugh holds a PhD in biochemistry and immunology. He also has he is also a patent attorney. He has authored 18 scientific journal articles and is an inventor on 21 US patents. He is CEO of two pharmaceutical companies that he started off of his own inventions. Hugh believes deeply in the concept of uniting the people and making policy decisions based on evidence, reason, and civil discussion, instead of money, influence, and divisions. So, Hugh, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Dan. Good. So, I, I really want to get into a discussion about your idea of a jury democracy, as well as your views on like, COVID mitigation, the environment, and issues important to the state of Minnesota, but first, let's talk about your personal motivation. You've done a lot in your life. You're well educated. You found great success in the business world. And you're quite the inventor. So, so why? I got to ask you this why politics? Why run for governor?
1: Oh, I've always been interested in public policy. And I think I, I'm kind of a. Um a problem solver I or not kind of I think I am a problem solver and that was the motivation for the cancer drug company I started and the, and the drug I invented is a targeted cancer drug with uh, lower side effects and better efficacy than the drugs I received as a cancer patient which motivated me to to uh, develop that invention and then the cold sore drug I was motivated to because I was having frequent cold sores and solved that problem for myself hmm. Um, and, um, and this is kind of, uh, so I think about things, I think from, uh, gee, this isn't working great. What would work? How could we make this work better standpoint of a sort of a problem solving standpoint? And Mm -hmm. largely that's politics and societal issues. And, uh, I think my jury democracy idea is a way to substantially improve our government and, and to unite us. Uh, and we're so divided right now.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that idea of a jury democracy. Um you know I read I read about it on your campaign website and it's a concept of um of bringing in ordinary citizens to debate and vote on bills, and uh, the recruitment of the jury would work similar, I guess, to the recruitment of an ordinary jury for like a courthouse. Can you go into more detail as to how this jury democracy works and what its benefits are?
1: yeah, so um. To my mind, the ideal form of government would be a Athenian democracy where everybody uh, or you could also consider it small town democracy or the way hunter gatherer societies or the Amish perhaps uh, govern themselves. She's in a small town or a small, small population. Everybody gets together. They discuss a particular problem or issue they are having Mm -hmm. and they reach a consensus and everybody has a voice in the process. Um, it's a, it's a real discussion. Um, it's not a snap opinion. Now that doesn't work of course in our society with 350 million people in the United States, uh, or millions in, in each of the States. Mm -hmm. But, um, we can get the same result by having a random sample of voters by statistics. So if we select 500 people randomly, uh, and they they hear the evidence, they, they go through the, the process, their decision will be statistically within 5% of the decision you would get or their vote would be within 5% of the vote you would get if you could have everybody in the in the state or nation go through the same process. So the idea is we would randomly select 500 or more citizens, probably 500 to 2000. Uh, they would come to the state, state capital, they would sit and listen to the arguments and evidence on a particular bill, just one bill or proposal, one issue. Uh, and um, just much like a jury in a civil or criminal trial, listens to the evidence from the, uh, from the lawyers on both sides of that. So both sides or all sides would get their chance to present um, present their, their evidence and their arguments, mm-hmm. uh, no hard time limits. And then, uh, and then the jury would read the bill, which would put them ahead of legislators often who don't have time to read every bill uh, that they have to consider. Uh, and then they would break into smaller groups of 12 and deliberate, talk about it with one another and then vote by secret ballot. And so uh, that I think would lead to uh, to policies being made based on evidence and argument and reason and civil discussion instead of our current system where policies are made based on influence and money, campaign finance, and on division and anger with one another. Uh, one thing about jur- the jury is you're gonna have a lot better success Making your arguments either as the advocate for the policy or when you break into your smaller groups and you want to advocate for the policy with the other people in your group, you're going to have a lot more success if you treat people with respect and you're calm and you're reasoned in your arguments than if you're screaming insults at everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, our political campaigns are largely screaming insults at everybody. Uh, so um, Uh, So that's, that's the process. I think we can, we can, and and each bill, each, each proposal would be argued on its own merits. Currently, when you vote for a Republican or a Democrat or whoever, you agree with that person or that party on maybe 70% of their issues and disagree on maybe 30%. I think very few of us agree straight down the line with any particular candidate or party on every issue. Uh, but you're voting for the entire package, and then they impose their their uh, entire package on you. With jury your democracy, you're voting on one particular issue. So by definition, every issue, every bill, has majority support from informed citizens.
0: So I guess I'm I'm in my mind I'm trying to conceive of how this works because one of the things that takes place when you are in, in a traditional representative democracy like we have right now is that there's a lot of horse trading that usually takes place on the floor of the House or the Senate, where the art of compromise means that you know everybody has to give and take. Everybody gives something. Everybody gets something. And that's how these bills—I mean, I don't really follow Minnesota at all, but I do follow Missouri quite a bit where I live right now. And these bills are changing continuously over a period of time until they arrive at a compromise— and it's not usually just about one thing. Right. It's sometimes you have to uh, uh, put some uh, addendums into the bill because these are these are the results of people making compromises. It seems like that would eliminate the process, though, wouldn't it? Because because the, the jury democracy, the the, the, yeah, the jury in this case would just be considering one bill in isolation. They They wouldn't be able to change it at all, would they?
1: No, they wouldn't be able to change it at all. Well, we could use we could do um uh jury advisory juries, um, uh, for instance, maybe healthcare reform. Um, you could have a jury consider a number of different proposals and uh and a number of aspects of healthcare reform, um, and vote, um. Uh, vote for some kind of ranked choice. Vote them, uh, or vote on various issues re- related to healthcare reform. I don't think that that's probably not the format I would use for approving a final bill, uh, but that could be used to see what to to get an informed sense of the citizens' opinion on on every aspect of it. Right. Uh, but one, but bills would be one subject. Uh, The Minnesota State Constitution, I think a number of state constitutions have a provision that every bill must be limited to one subject, and that is ignored, really, and the courts really haven't enforced that. Mm. Um, But I think a jury would enforce that, and a jury would say, why are you giving me a bill about um, uh, whatever, license tab fees and state parks in the same bill? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, let's vote on each of these things in, in their, on their own, their own merits. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a good thing. Um, the horse trading, um, on the budget, the horse trading is mostly in the budget. I think is I'll give you, I'll give you a million dollars, uh, for the project you want in Wilmer, Minnesota. If we can add a million dollars for a project I want in Cook, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there, I think I, we would have a limited number, possibly just two would be my, well, the way I'm thinking about it right now, uh, have the legislature send two or possibly a few, four maybe budgets to the jury and the jury votes the one they prefer or rank choice votes, the one they prefer. Yeah,
0: okay. Um,
1: okay. but the jury wouldn't, wouldn't be able to involve. Get involved in uh, horse trading
0: per se. Okay. Yeah. In, in the the problem in just to give you an idea of what happens in Missouri here, the the legislature meets uh, January through May generally, and they keep messing around with different bills and and the it always is a mad rush at the end. So they create what they call these omnibus bills, where they just yeah. they just throw all this garbage into a bill and try to get everybody to pass it so that you know so that they can all go home in May. Um.
1: Yeah. Minnesota, Minnesota is the same way. Uh, and, um, yeah, so I think this would, I think this can cut through the clutter. So nothing gets done. We had, I think I had a legislator tell me there were 11, bill, there were a uh, six, I think maybe he has had 6,000 or 2000 bills that were introduced in the last session wow. and 11 that were passed 11 that were in, in two years or a year that were passed. Yeah. Um, and I went, uh, and a funny story, I went to uh, sign, um, when I was collecting signatures for my campaign, I uh, one, one guy I met uh, was complaining about the legislature accomplishing nothing. And he said, but thank God they passed that bill that allowed 20-ounce beer sales. What would we do without that?
0: <laughs> well, that's important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you need him on your jury. <laughs> well... So, um, but uh, you you also, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I do want to move on to other topics here, but one thing that interested me about the jury democracy was that um, you you also talk about expanding it into other branches, like there's the executive branch and the judicial branch, where juries can actually play a part in the executive branch, for instance, when they debate over things like um, policies and and regulations and things like that. Um, Yeah, that, uh, Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I would like to do that. In the, in the executive branch, um, we pass regulations by notice and comment. Uh, so they don't even have to do notice and comment, but oftentimes they do notice and comment. Say this: this is the regulation we're, we're proposing, uh, and accept public comments on that. And my sense is usually they just ignore the public comments. They're they're doing what they want to do. uh, And regulations get reversed by 180 degrees. The federal ones, also, I'm sure, in states when you go from a Republican uh, president to a Democratic president. Um, So that makes no sense. So I would uh, and the regulatory agencies also regulatory capture is a known problem that regulatory agents get captured by the, the industry they are. Regulating and have a revolving door with the government regulators going into the industry and back out into the into the um, into yeah. the regulations. Yeah. And so I think, for instance, they often like in the pharmaceutical world, the regulations favor big pharma because it create large hurdles for small pharma companies to introduce to get new drugs onto the market so the big pharma doesn't have to compete with them.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, um, you're, you're hitting upon, like, corruption right there. I mean, uh, that in, in a sense, you know, that's one of the reasons why things slow down to a crawl in this country is um, is is corruption. And I guess this jury democracy idea that you have um, would essentially maybe uh, minimize it or eliminate it altogether, huh?
1: It would almost eliminate it, I think, because the jurors... You wouldn't know who the jurors are going to be. It could be a serious crime to bribe a juror. Um, and uh, they're not running for office again. They're just on this one bill. So uh, they're not motivated by getting re-election. Their votes would be secret, or at least secret if they want them to be secret. They could, of course, give an interview or say, this is the way I voted and I'm the, I'm one of the people that served on the jury. Uh, but, um, Right. Uh, but I would keep them secret. So yeah, I think they'd be largely incorruptible.
0: Yeah. Have you ever heard? Uh, speaking of corruption, have you ever heard of this of this um, organization called Move to Amend?
1: Yes, I I got an email from them. Yes.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, we uh, we've we've talked with them on several different podcasts previously, and uh, they're they're uh, that's one other way of attacking corruption. Anyways, is to uh they want to actually create a 28th amendment i think that's the next one up 28th and uh, yeah. it basically says artificial entities such as corporations do not have constitutional rights and money is not free speech so
1: yeah i i i agree with the first i'm a little unsure about money being like i kind of feel that you should be able to spend there probably should be some limits, but if you want to spend spend your fortune on one particular cause, have at it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> kind of. yeah. Well, that's it's something to look at anyways when you get an opportunity to take a move to amend. I'd like to yeah. move on now to to lockdowns because that's features prominently in your campaign website as well. And you write yeah. extensively about these COVID lockdowns and how they did so much damage to our society. Uh, you know, you cite things like with increased isolation, personal mental health issues flared up resulting in an increase of depression and suicide. Education, of course, suffered. We all know that because the children were not in a regular classroom. And the economy, that's the big thing. The economy took a big hit. And the reverberations of this hit is going to be felt for many years. And in the end, uh, you know, what you say on your website here is that lockdowns really didn't make a difference in terms of the spread of the disease and its ultimate mortality. So uh, this is a very passionate uh part of your uh, of your website i think so can you go into more detail about this
1: uh yeah you summarized it well i was um at the beginning of this i started blogging about uh about lockdowns and and my thought my feelings about them and my thought that this was going to cause vastly more harm than good in terms of uh, particularly in terms of depression and unhappiness, also in terms even of deaths, uh, deaths caused versus deaths prevented, uh, with uh, I and others were predicting we would have an, a, a large increase in suicides and other deaths of despair, deaths from alcohol and drug abuse. Um, and that's proven to be the case. Uh, we have had a large increase in those deaths. Yeah. And uh, I and others were predicting, well, I was predicting anyway, the time of life lost from those deaths would exceed the time of life saved in prevented COVID deaths. Because the, those people we were killing from suicides and drug overdose deaths, they're, they're in their 40s or 30s or even teenage years. Uh, so they've got a lot of years left. Um, the people dying of COVID on average is an 84 year old living in a nursing home with multiple pre-existing conditions. Uh, on average, they have four years of life expectancy left that median person living in a nursing home at age 84 with pre-existing conditions—they have less than a year left. So the majority of people dying of COVID had less than a year to live had they not contracted COVID. Uh, and on average, even with this the, the smallish number of young people who died of COVID or middle-aged people who died of COVID, it, I calculated it's four years. Um, but anyway, it, it it took away the lockdowns here in Minnesota. Um, they took away my social life entirely and uh we were bar they closed the health clubs which to me is just insane if you want to promote health you're going to close the health clubs right. uh they closed the churches uh and um as well as restaurants and bars my entire social life was my church and my health club where i play tennis so that was all taken away from me uh and um and threw me into depression, frankly. So I was one of the people who was thrown into depression. The uh, the and the number of people thrown into depression is absolutely absolutely staggering. The U.S. the percentage of the United States population with moderate to severe depression, major depression, was 8.5 percent in 2019 before the lockdowns. In the midst of the lockdowns, it was 27 over 27 percent we threw one in five Americans into clinical depression. We, Our leaders effectively decided to throw one in five Americans into clinical depression because that was entirely predictable. Uh, so they decided to do that and decided that that would be worth, that would be a cost that would be worth paying. That's absolutely insane. Of course, it's not a cost that's worth paying.
0: Well, well if I may interrupt you though, I mean, if, if well, I remember when this whole thing started to unravel, you know, when, when we started going into lockdowns back in uh, March of 2020 and at work, they told us, and I think the the prevalent the, the uh, prevailing wisdom at that point was that this lockdown's only going to last about a month or two, and I think people could dig in and 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 last through that storm. Um, obviously, it went a lot longer. So uh, I think it wasn't necessarily doing the lockdowns initially, but it was just the fact that they really had no way predicting how long it would be necessary to have these lockdowns. so, is it one of those things where it sounded like a good idea at first and then later on they figured out, hey, you know, after about six months, you know, we're running into problems at this point, but they didn't necessarily see it in the very beginning.
1: Well, I guess they didn't, but uh, that's incompetence. If you're if you're a public official, if you're – and you, you decide to – I mean, the policy literally was to prevent human interaction as much as possible. Right. We are a social species. If you had – if you had designed a policy, I contend, if you had, if you were an evil dictator and you, you, your goal was to maximize depression, you you wanted to make people as unhappy as possible and drive up depression as much as possible. I contend this is exactly the policy you would do. Uh, you you would prevent face-to-face interaction as much as possible. Uh, you would close the churches to to eliminate spiritual uh, support and comfort. Um, you would close all means of socially interacting r- restaurants and 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 bars and health clubs um you would close the state parks which is insane no nobody contracts covid outside uh um uh mm-hmm. and you would um And to the extent you can't eliminate face-to-face interaction, you would order people to wear masks, so they have a visual reminder to tell tell each other, "I'm afraid of you. You should be afraid of me. We're in a catastrophe. You should all be be depressed and and to hide your smiles from one another and hide hide nonverbal communication. So it was very very predictable. This would this would result in an explosion of depression, an explosion of deaths of despair. Uh, it was one could have thought it might reduce COVID. I I thought it would have some effect on preventing COVID deaths. I certainly thought it's got to have some effect. I didn't think that ordering everyone to stay at home was the sensible policy. The sensible policy would have been to um, tell people if you're sick, if you're feeling sick, stay home. Uh, And if you're not feeling sick, go about your life. Uh, Because it turns out and uh, this is for colds and flu. We knew this was true that that um, symptomatic people are infectious and asymptomatic people are not even if they're infected. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, quarantine, everybody had no effect. on It was just a terrible idea. So I think it was a terrible idea. But even if you thought it was reasonable at first, within a few weeks. You could see that the lockdowns, the stay-at-home orders, the mask mandates, whatever we tried, was having no effect on trends and cases.
0: Oh, let's talk about happiness. Okay, this is something that uh, appears on your website as well. I read on your website where you talk about the overall happiness. You know, we were talking about depression before, so now let's talk about happiness. And that should be like one of the one of the primary goals of the government, or or did I get that right?
1: Yeah, that's what—that's my position. It should be the primary goal of the government. I think the primary goal of our society, of our, system, our economic system, and also of our government now is really to grow the economy, to maximize aggregate GDP, not even per capita GDP or per capita of an economic well-being, but just the overall size of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not our goal in life. Even our own, even money for ourselves, it's, that's a goal. We'd like to get more money, but- the reason we want more money is we think it'll make us happier. Uh, ultimately, we, what we want is to be happy. And one way, incidentally, to be happy is to help make other people happy. Mm-hmm. That's probably mm-hmm. the best way to, to become happier. Um, but uh, so the so our goal in life is to be happy. Uh, my position is that should be the primary goal of government, to promote happiness and from that some a few things follow one is we should track statistics on happiness and depression and loneliness just as carefully as we or more carefully than we currently track statistics on gdp and and economic statistics Fine. and we should evaluate policies on their effect of happy, on happiness so i have a couple of proposals specifically aimed for happiness one is to replace the mask mandate which i think substantially made us depressed and unhappy and like i said was a visual signal i'm afraid of you you should be afraid of me and we're undergoing a catastrophe and we should all be depressed about this replace the mask mandate with a name tag request uh so one it's not mandatory it's a request we're not going to kick people out of church for not wearing a mask or not wearing
0: a Your name tag, tag
1: yeah. uh, And um, uh, but the name tag that says, in my case, what I'm proposing is it says Minnesota Nice, which is a saying in Minnesota that we say about each about the culture up here. Of Minnesotans are nice. Sometimes it's used sarcastically, like we're not really nice. I think Minnesotans are mostly nice people. But anyway, a, uh, it says Minnesota Nice and your first name. And you don't need to, you know, you can put out whatever name. You can say Bozo if you don't want to play along or whatever name you want to use. But uh, um, uh, so you, it, it, it says, it's a visual reminder I want to be nice. I'm trying to be a nice person and I hope you'll be nice to me. And my name is Hugh. And I'd like to meet you. I think it would help people to meet each other, help to remember people's names, which would improve social interaction uh, and be a visual reminder that we're trying to be nice to each other. Uh, So I think that will improve happiness, decrease depression and decrease loneliness.
0: Yeah. Uh, Have you ever heard of something called uh, the Bridge Alliance or Braver Angels, those types of groups where they get people together to talk about stuff and... Trust each other. Uh, no, I,
1: no, I'm not familiar with those groups in
0: particular. Yeah, yeah, we've we've interviewed uh, 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 the Braver Angels uh, on our webcast on our on our podcast some time ago, and the idea there was to to basically recognize the fact that people do have differences, right? You have an extreme conservative, re- re- extreme liberal person. Get them together in small groups, you know, maybe meet yeah. at a bar or something like that, have some beer, uh, and don't be afraid to talk and don't be afraid to listen and exchange ideas. And those types of, I think that kind of fits in with your happiness quotient right there, if I may, if I may say. Yeah, I
1: think that. it, I think it does. And I think it fits even better, I would say with my jury democracy proposal. So I want, mm-hmm. I want the juries to be that way. You're going to sit with um, jurors from across the state and, um, and jurors who, uh, so I want to mix people up randomly. They break into smaller groups. It's a large jury of 500 or more, but then you break into smaller groups of 12 and talk about it. In that 12, I don't want it, like I want everybody to come to the state capital. I don't want separate juries of 12 in each county. So you're only seeing people from your own county. Uh, I want everybody mixed together. So you hopefully see some people of other races, city and urban, city and rural people uh, are mixed together in the same jury uh people of different ages and diff- very much different political outlooks. So you learn, I think you're, I'm predicting you will learn you like each other better than you may have thought you were going to like somebody of the other political persuasion. And you maybe start to understand what they're thinking about and that ultimately they probably want the same things in life that you want.
0: Yeah. I've had that experience traveling all over the world. I, I used to work at a company that um, had me, Literally traveling the world for uh, almost 10 years, really got tired of it. But what I never got tired of was this: was this, no matter where you are in the world, you know, I could be like in, in the middle of the night in Bangalore, India, or something like that, and just talking to people. And it's like, hey, you have the same the same concerns I do. You know, everybody wants uh, the same thing. Basically, want to have uh, uh, safety for their family. They want to earn a living, etc. So there really isn't that much difference in terms of what we basically want. It really sometimes can exacerbate some differences if you start talking about politics. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's just a matter of getting together and talking with people. Um, I really want to talk to you also. uh, There's one other thing you brought up is underneath one of your values uh, topics. You talked about uh, personal liberty and you write, quote, unless we have a good reason to restrict people's behavior and the benefits of those restrictions to other people substantially exceed the harms, we should not restrict behavior. And if it's a close call, we should err on the side of more personal liberty and let people do as they want. Um, So can you explain this and how this uh, relates to certain things? Like lately, we've been talking a lot about abortion and is that really personal liberty or is that not personal liberty
1: yeah i would view abortion as personal liberty uh it ties in with my COVID views i think that if there's not a substantial benefit to kicking kids out of school or telling people they can't go to church uh then uh you shouldn't be doing that they should be allowed to do as they please um and abortion certainly i think people should be able to control their own bodies so i think i think in I'm, I'm i'm strongly pro-choice and uh to me it's kind of a question of comparing the interests of an actual adult person a woman in this case uh in controlling her body and in her health and her in her own choices and personal liberty versus a theoretical person that doesn't exist yet yeah uh, so mm-hmm. i weigh the it's not a close call you go with the actual person over the theoretical person okay. uh um and um yeah so anyway i'm i uh, i think that uh, abortion is a pro-choice is is a uh, is a personal liberty issue for me i also am uh i differ from my opponents in um i think everybody should have Bodily integrity. So, uh, Scott Jensen, my Republican opponent, he opposes abortion. So, he doesn't think women should have po- bodily integrity, the, the choice to choices over their own bodies. Mm. But he thinks that uh, he opposes vaccine mandates, as I do. So, he thinks everybody other than a pregnant woman should have control over their body. Uh, uh, Tim Walls, the incumbent governor, he's pro choice, but he's he supports vaccine mandates and vaccine coercion. So he thinks that only pregnant women uh, should have control over their, over their own body. I think everybody should have control over their own body. Uh, so that means uh, I'm pro-choice and it means I'm anti-vaccine mandate. I'm pro-choice about what medical treatments you receive and what vaccines you, you receive.
0: How does that work out in terms of gun regulation then? Because an argument could be made that I have a right to own guns and shoot them and pretty much do whatever I want to do with them unless I'm hurting somebody else. But, uh, you know, when bullets leave the chamber or leave the barrel of a gun, um, you know, they're pretty much in public space at that point. So, you know, how do we make sure that people can still have their liberty and and yet uh, protect the people that um, could be on the receiving end of that gunfire?
1: Yeah, I'm— uh, I don't want to take guns away from everybody, so I support the Second Amendment in that sense, but uh, but I'm relatively pro-gun uh, control, common sense gun control. So there's a, there's a case where the harms to others substantially ex- exceed the benefits. The harms to others, to some others, is they get killed. Yeah. Um, uh, and that, that happened to the children in Uvalde, at Texas, um, among others. Uh, the benefit... So, so I don't have a problem with restricting that, that I think, uh, mm-hmm. gun control is, we, you know, you kind of have to draw the line somewhere. Nobody thinks if you're really an absolutist about it, then you should believe logically that people should have the right to own nuclear weapons. People should have the right to own shoulder mounted heat seeking anti-aircraft missiles,
0: right. which
1: wouldn't be feasible. They're not that expensive. Uh, so, uh, then, then we'd have commercial airlines being shot out of the sky. Yeah. So presumably everybody thinks you shouldn't don't have the right to own those. Um, and nearly everybody thinks that if you're a mentally healthy law abiding person, you should have the right to own a handgun or a rifle. Um, so, the you know, what we're debating is for mentally unhealthy people, uh, minors, um, uh, And criminals, uh, uh, people previously convicted criminals, should they have the right to own a gun and should anybody have a right to own a a, a semi-automatic?
0: Okay. Fair enough. Um, I know we're coming up on the end of our time here, um, but I do want to ask you one more question, and that is, what can our listeners do to learn more about your campaign and get involved?
1: Thank you. Uh, My campaign website is mctavish4mn.org. Um, and so you can read about all my positions there. I think I've got more detailed positions and more writings than, uh, either of my opponents. Uh, and, and donate, please donate. It's, uh, uh as, as your listeners know, it's a hard slog as a third party candidate. Um, uh, but we need to raise, raise, uh, uh a fairly substantial amount of money to get the word out and to be considered a, uh, a viable alternative. Uh, So, so please donate to my campaign there and read up on it.
0: Okay. Even um, if you don't
1: live in Minnesota, if you like what I'm saying, it'd be great if you could donate.
0: Okay. That's McTavish 4MN and the four is is the number four. M-C-T-A-V-I-S-H 4MN.org. Okay, good. And uh, I heard that the state bird of Minnesota is the mosquito. Is that correct?
1: No, it's the loon. That is a myth. (laughs) <laughs>
0: that is a delicious I, saw on a, I saw it on a <laughs> postcard. I just took it at face value. Okay, We've been talking with Hugh McTavish, biochemist, immunologist, inventor, patent attorney, and Independence Alliance Party candidate for governor for the beautiful state of Minnesota. Hugh, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and good luck in your campaign.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me from the beautiful state of Missouri.
0: You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you tune in again next week.